It's time for part two of my conversation with John Michael Godier. In part one, we talked about the Artemis mission, space exploration in general. In part two, we have that age-old conversation about why I think we're alone in the universe. John is maybe less on board with my idea, more open to the possibilities, but still fairly rigorous in his thinking about whether or not there's aliens in the universe. It's a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But if you haven't already, go to John Michael Godier's YouTube channel, subscribe, go to his podcast, subscribe, watch both, everything, many times. He's a great podcaster, and he needs your support. So definitely check it out. All right, here's the interview. And we're back with Fraser Kane. Now, Fraser, another thing that's been developing at NASA lately is the talk of technosignatures. In other words, looking for evidence of alien life again. Now, NASA was gun shy about this whole thing for many years. You remember SETI's funding got yanked. Mm -hmm. Everybody was fighting about the labeled release experiment and what that actually meant, which meant, in effect, no real direct life detection experiments since and all that. But that seems to be changing. We seem to be moving into a different paradigm with NASA where they're willing to rebrand SETI as, as uh, searching for technosignatures. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that that's really what NASA should be doing or should that really be remain a privately funded sort of thing? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely a, a science question. And I think NASA, everyone should be thinking about this to some extent. Um, look, I think... What's happening is that you've you've got this search for life that is deep in the DNA of NASA at this point. The search for life on Mars, the search for life on Europa, Enceladus. One of the goals of JWST is to scan the atmospheres of exoplanets. You've got other technologies coming after which are specifically going to be looking for habitable environments. And so it, at a some certain point, it seems crazy. I, I talked to Jason Wright. I'm sure you've you've mentioned him many times in the past, and he says like it's it's ridiculous. Like why can we search for dumb life, but it's wrong to search for smart life, and and so it's it's inevitable that you're going to wonder while we're looking for carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of this exoplanet, could we also look for chlorofluorocarbons? Turns out we can. Well, then we should. And I think that it's just a natural outcome that the, that the capability of the current instruments is enabling these kinds of, of searches. And it is absolutely a scientific question. Are we alone in the universe? It's possibly one of the most important scientific questions we can possibly ask. So it makes sense to ask it. And and you're exactly right. There has been a dramatic thawing at NASA and other science agencies to fund this kind of research, to host conferences where researchers come together and talk about some clever ideas on how they could search for this. It's a pretty exciting time in the field of, of astrobiology and technosignatures. That's one thing that, that particularly excites me is the idea of CFCs, because not only can you have a situation where you see somebody destroying their ozone layer, but CFCs are really, really good terraforming gases. Yeah. In other words, you can warm a planet up with those things. So we might look out there and see some Mars-like world that shouldn't really be holding on to an atmosphere. We can tell the age of things like star systems, and it's sitting there holding on to an atmosphere that is heavily populated with CFCs, and that's it. That's it. 
that can't be natural. Yeah. You know, it's the, yeah. the unnatural planet and there is alien life and you don't need a radio signal. You don't need anything. You just need the light from that world. Yeah. 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 hundred percent. And that's, that's, that's where I think the, the fruit of this is going to come from is we're going to spot something weird and JWST can already do it Yeah, to I, a limited degree. Anyway. I really enjoy like when you read the papers that came out of the, the folks in those techno signature groups, the cleverness and ingenuity of their ideas for things that they could search for. Some of them had never even occurred to me. And then you see these ideas and you're like, that is so smart that these are the kinds of things that, that a civilization could be giving off in some cases intentionally and in some cases unintentionally that we could be looking for either with technology we have today or technology that we could develop very soon. There was actually an idea that I, I talked with him about it. Robert Zubrin came up with a, an idea many, many years ago in the 90s about clusters of weird looking worlds showing terraformers that are moving outward mm -hmm. and that you can take it at one techno signature that may be ambiguous, but if you got a cluster of them, it's not ambiguous. Yep. And I think that's one area that's going to be of great interest in astrobiology is trying to eliminate the ambiguity of detections. Yes. You know, things like wow signal where it's like, well, it's ambiguous, you know, and that's been the confounding factor in anything that's been put forward, Tabby Star, anything else, anytime. Well, I mean, you look at phosphine in Venus. I mean, Venus is right over there. And astronomers are arguing about whether or not they've actually seen evidence of phosphine in the atmosphere of, of Venus. Can you imagine how much more difficult it would be to confirm the discovery of phosphine in a planet that is 100 light years away? Unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I, like, I think that people are really hoping that there's going to be this moment where someone takes to the stage at NASA and says, we found proof of an alien civilization or uh, even of, of life beyond Earth. But the reality is, is that it's going to just unfold in this long, slow, meticulous discovery after discovery. Yep. We found carbon dioxide in the atmosphere of a planet, and we know with Venus that that's possible. But we also found methane, which has a very hard time for both methane and carbon dioxide to be present in the atmosphere at the same time. And this planet is in the habitable zone of its world, and it has a magnetosphere, and so on and so forth. But like, I wouldn't be surprised if we are waiting 50 years for scientists to say, okay, I'm pretty sure we're seeing, we're looking at life on this planet. But if you find a techno signature, in many cases, it's, it's one and done. You know right away that there is no such thing as a triangular shaped planet or a green filter that you put in front of a star. There is no such thing right. as a, as a radio wave that goes at a certain you know, at a certain bandwidth. So there are for certain frequencies. So there are, there are things that, that, that would be techno signatures that actually would be vastly more convincing than, than a non-technical life form. But there's also the factor that they can also be disappointing. For example, we, you, you know, you come out and you say, we have detected an unambiguous technological radio signal. We know it's narrowband. We know all this stuff. It has to be of alien origin. And everybody's like, well, what are they like? And like, we don't know. They, we just know they have radar. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all we know for decades. Yep. So I, I temper my enthusiasm for the discovery of technological alien life because it, it could get, it's going to get really murky. That said, I think we have two chances here on Earth 
to determine if alien life in general exists, which is looking at Enceladus and Europa and doing those kinds of missions, or cracking the nut of abiogenesis and seeing how difficult it actually is. That's enough for me because you find a microbe that's not from here. Mm-hmm. We are not alone. Mm-hmm. We are not alone. Yeah. And that's all you need. And it may not be yeah. as interesting as as a Klingon. It's still that tells you, you know, you find two instances of life in this star system, then this universe teems with life. And that's also when you need to be nervous because mm-hmm. that's when the that's when the great filter raises its ugly dark ugly shadow. Head. It's long shadow, yeah. yeah. And that, you know, what actually disturbs me the most about the Great Filter is that we haven't hit it yet. In other words, we made it this far, right, without any real problems or else we wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. So if there is a Great Filter, it's something we have not envisioned because... Mm -hmm. And we are 100 years away from self-replicating, sending out self-replicating robot probes. We are are that close to von Neumann probes. And we're just so close, yet when you look out, I've seen... In all of these years of doing this, I've seen nothing that that convinced me that we're seeing any indication of alien life. But the problem is, is I think we should be seeing it. You know, I think we should see a solution to the Fermi paradox when we look out, and that they should be everywhere. Evidence should be everywhere, and it isn't. Well, and and so your possibilities are. I mean, you and I had a debate of sorts a couple of years ago, and like either there's a great filter. Or we're alone in the universe. And I prefer the latter just because I, I don't, the former is too horrifying to, to conceive of. So I'd much rather the answer is the reason we don't see anybody is because we're alone, not the reason we don't see anybody is because we're doomed. My gut feeling is that we're just rare. You know, intelligent alien civilizations are just rare and that biospheres are not. And there's probably microbes pervading the universe. They're all over. But the more complex you get, the harder it is to arrive at that complexity. Yeah. But what I really don't like, what scares me is if we are completely alone in the universe. Mm-hmm. Because then we, we we live on the island from Lost. This place is a magical unicorn where organic chemistry happens. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And I, I don't like that solution either. Well, I don't like the response, the crushing responsibility. Because then, like, life in the universe depends on us. And and that's, like, let's let the Klingons tackle it. Let's let the Federation handle it. Yeah. As opposed to if we, humanity, screw up this planet and, and wipe ourselves out, and then the octopuses, you know, have used all the, the petroleum so the octopuses can't build a civilization, and then the sun bakes the planet and life had its chance to escape Earth and it never did, and it was our fault. That would suck. You know, that would be that would be absolutely horrible as if our, our, our legacy as a species, as a as a civilization, is not leaving any oil for the octopi. Yeah. And that's what we're remembered for forever. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is nice guys used all the yeah. used all the oil. Yep. Yeah. Now, what do you think about that? Oil and getting uh, getting away from it with the advancement of technology towards electric cars and things like that to evoke Elon again. Do you think that we're going to be able to sort of move past that? Do you think we're close to fusion? Do you think that we have an out as far as a potential great filter? Uh, yeah. I mean, like if you're talking about are we going to suffer consequences for burning all this oil? Absolutely. I mean, we're suffering them already. Um and I, but I do think that we w- we will come out the other side of it without completely dooming humanity, and that is the same thing for many of the possibilities. 
a nuclear war wouldn't doom humanity. A asteroid strike wouldn't doom humanity. A, a lot of volcanism wouldn't doom humanity. They would all deal a hammer blow, but they wouldn't wipe us off the planet entirely. The I you know it gets very existential when you think about what is the great filter because it has to be something that we can't predict because if we could, you know, if other civilizations were able to predict it, then they would have been able to avoid it. And it's something that happens 100% of the time to every civilization. And so whatever this thing is, it is, it is inevitable. It is unpredictable and it is final that it, that it, that it takes out the entire capacity of the planet to turn itself into a spacefaring civilization irrevocably. And, and there aren't many things that meet that criteria, you know, even as we look with shock and awe at the capability of artificial intelligence at this point, I've been playing around with this chat GPT and I get shivers how good this thing is as I have this conversation with this artificial intelligence. Well, you know, if the, if the, if the great filter is, is robot overlords, they're happy to fly to space. So we don't see, we don't even see artificial intelligence civilizations out there gobbling up worlds. So the great filter is not an artificial intelligence doom a robotic doom. It's something else. Unless, unless there is a, a proto-intelligence and for the mass sure. effect people, we can call it the reapers or whatever, but that there is, that there is just one force out there, mm -hmm. a police force that prevents the, the, you know, it was first, it killed its uh, biological civilization. It's an artificial intelligence in the galaxy and it stops any competition. In other words, once you develop um, artificial intelligence or, or try to develop generalized AI, it wakes up, it's sitting in your star system as von Neumann probe and yeah, knocks maybe. it back to the uh, Stone Age. And that's the great filter is that there's something out there that is so heinously powerful and evil, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ultimately, that you, it, you get the smackdown without even knowing, and it hides itself simply for the the element of surprise. Well, it doesn't see itself as evil. It's just pulling weeds. Yeah. Right? And when you pull the weeds in your garden, when you plant a bunch of seeds down and you pull all the weeds up, are you being evil? No, you're just making sure that the seeds grow. So I think we would, we at the weed sees what you're doing as reprehensible and you ought you ought to be go off to the hague but 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 we don't see it that way yeah my, my garden my garden does not like me they uh, plant rebellion no exactly yeah yeah but they just there's nothing i can do to stop you yeah so i think so my mind my imagination just goes to weird science experiments that that always will occur to a to a civilization at the moment of attempting spaceflight where they go, I wonder if I can use metallic hydrogen and then you use metallic hydrogen and it wipes out your planet. You know, that's something, there's a wild card, metallic hydrogen, which we think, we think could be metastable. So there's a wild card because you, we know that the stuff probably exists under very high pressure in, in interiors of gas giants like Jupiter, but something comes along and is able to release metallic hydrogen from a gas giant that's a that is a an exotic material of which we 
I mean, there are some claims that we've synthesized it, but nothing convincing yet. And it's like, there are materials possible, theoretically, in the universe. And you could bring up, um, you could bring up, uh, oh, there's, there's a number of them, you know, materials that are, that are sort of anti-gravity, anti-materials <laughs> and things mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. these sorts of things. And that we can envision, but we... Like strange matter. Strange matter, strange lit. Infects at the speed of light. Yeah. yeah that, that infects other matter at the speed of light in this sphere that's expanding. You'd think, though, we would run across that by now and not be here. I've got, I've got a great filter for you that's relatively innocuous, but would be maddening for the civilization that was in that position. Intelligence, but you're stuck in water. And that it's all water worlds out there. And that we got lucky with one that just didn't have quite enough water to be a complete ocean world. And the thing is, is that if you're stuck in an ocean under an ice shell or even, you know, just an open ocean, you're not going to harness fire and you're not going to be able to do much. Right. And that may be the reality of the universe is that future humanity may be liberating, you know, intelligent uh, octopus worlds right. and uplifting right. them yeah. because they're stuck there, yeah. you know. Throwing rafts down to octopus worlds. Yeah, but I mean, again, like, do you think that every single planet is like that? That we're the only planet with a mixture of oceans and land? I mean, we know that Mars used to have a mixture of oceans and land at one point in the past. Venus probably had oceans and and land in the past. Titan has oceans of methane and land made of ice, but still. So, like, the the problem with the Great Filter with all these ideas is that the numbers are so big that you're, you're having to look at numbers that are 100 to 400 billion stars per galaxy, potentially 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Multiply those two numbers together, that gives you the number of stars that are out there. Each star probably has multiple planets, many of which are going to be in the habitable zone. You get to run this this experiment quintillions of times, and yet you you only have one world that we know of where life has formed. So the, you know, and I, I, the, it's, you know, when you look at things like say grabby aliens, right. It's, it's about, it's not about like, we haven't been looking, listening long enough, like an alien civilization that is expanding at close to the speed of light, gobbling up star systems would be the most obvious thing in the universe. You would see it. And yet we don't see a single one. Every every galaxy that we see looks untouched. Every star that we see looks un, unenclosed by a Dyson sphere. We don't see any evidence whatsoever of large scale engineering by any civilization. And and yet someone should have somewhere should have gotten through this filter. And yet we don't see it. So I again la 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 la. We're alone. <laughs> Not going to think about the alternative. We are not doomed. We are alone. Well, that's that's the other thing is that if we are alone, then we're not doomed. You that's know, exactly that it. Yeah. yeah. The universe, not only that, but we don't, we're not going to have to feel bad about going to other star systems because everything is just going to be rocks. You know, uh, that's true. It, it also, you know, because of the, the 
just the crushing distance of interstellar space, it would be very hard for us to actually send a human to the nearest star system. Now, the one thing that we do have is that if we wait long enough, you know, stars will pass by. Yeah. You know, they're close enough to where to where we can, you know, these are the ideas of Benford where you could, you know, place a probe with whenever a star comes within a light year of you and do it that way. But again, we don't see any evidence, any convincing evidence that this has happened, that anybody's put a probe here. We just look and we see natural asteroids and, you know, yep. everything just looks like nature. Yep. But there is the treacherous subject of, and this is going to happen in the comments. Everybody's going to be saying, well, look, maybe they are here mm. and that we're just not recognizing it. Now, NASA has recently set up a panel along with Harvard and Avi Loeb and everybody else looking into UAP. Do you think this is ground that should be paid attention to, to at least eliminate the, the argument? Sure. Like, like I think, you know, when you look at the kinds of things that have been seen so far, at no point has a spacecraft landed that is currently sitting on the Washington Mall and anyone who wants can go over and examine it. That does not exist. That all of the evidence that has been seen so far is anecdotal, circumstantial, and thin. And, you know, whenever I say this kind of thing, a lot of people say, yeah, but what about the commander of the F-18 who saw these objects moving in the sky and chased them around and, and you know, he's an expert and so on and so forth. Sure. But I can't go and examine these things. And so the, the story begins and ends with his personal testimony and there's no more information to be gained from, from that testimony. And at the same time, you have people like Mick West, who have investigated enough of these things and come up with extremely plausible explanations for them, that it feels like the remaining ones will probably fall to other, either will remain unexplained, and there will be, you know, there will be the wow signal, right? They'll just be like, someone saw something interesting, and there's no way to ever find out anything more about it. That's too bad. Um I think if you can, and so then you've got to say like, when is this a good use of resources? And when is this, you're just pulling money away from searching for techno signatures, right? Would you, would you take, you've, you've got a budget of $5 million. Do you want to spend that time examining UAP settings? Or do you want to spend that budget searching for chlorofluorocarbons using James Webb? Um, and I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you know, I mean, and I think, so I think having an expert panel look into this and decide, or at least come up with some recommendations for where that line should, could be drawn, I think is very, is, is, is great. I think that's a really good use of their time. And you look at some of the people on that panel, you've got uh, David Grinspoon, you've got, I think Scott Kelly's on there. You've got a bunch of really interesting people who know what they're talking about. And I trust their their work. But the question is, will the believers trust their work? If they come back and say, we've looked into, into these and none of them merit follow-on observations, we don't think we should spend any continuing budget on this. Will people go, yeah, you're right. But what are you going to do? No, no. And and so there's a, there's a lack of a trust in expertise. And... And unfortunately, this search for UAPs has 
has gotten, I think, mashed up with conspiracy theory to the point that they are inextricably linked at this point. I'd hope that they're not and that we could probably get something, but you're right. It's, it's so inextricably linked to conspiracy theories that yeah. any results are not going to be accepted, even if the results are there's an alien civilization in our atmosphere with us, even if that were the, <laughs> the conclusion. No, I disagree. I think if, no, I think if, if, if David, if, you know, if, if Grinspoon comes to the conclusion that there's an alien civilization in the Milky is in the solar system, I would be on board. I would believe him. Oh, I would right? too. Like, I would, I would right? personally, but that would, yeah. That and would I be... think a lot of other people would too. Like, like I think if you, if you had a group of non, you know, a very serious non-conspiratorially minded scientists come back with a conclusion that matches the claims made by the UFO proponents, then I think you would have a much wider acceptance of this phenomena. The problem is, is that the water has just been muddied so badly by, you know, you go onto YouTube and you look at channels where people are just, they're, they're spouting nonsense and, and it, but very authoritatively. Oh, it's true. And yeah. It has to yeah. be said. And so, it has to be said. There's a lot of there. There may be a kernel of truth in this, but it's surrounded by a whole lot of fluff, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's yeah. very difficult to get to it. But I can tell you this: we both, again, been practicing amateur astronomy for many years, and I've seen a couple things that I don't know what they are that lead me to wonder mm -hmm. if there's something about the atmosphere that we don't know. Something with lights and Fata Morganas and you know just all of these effects, plasmas, that lead me to wonder. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I think you know. I mean, there's been new forms of auroras that have been figured out. Ball lightning that had been predicted for a long time has finally been observed and understood. So I, th I think, but there are interesting discoveries to be made in all corners of nature. And so I think the, the question is just a matter of budget. When do you continue to double? Like I think for a lot of the UFO proponents, there would never be an amount that's enough. Like you could spend billions and billions of dollars, you could set up a system that would track the sky to the nth degree and you wouldn't find anything and that would just be, you know, that wouldn't be enough. So I think, you know, for the longest time, a lot of people have said, please, will you please just look into this? Please. And, and now NASA and the US military said, okay, we're going to look into this. It's also, but it's also, will they accept point, the answer? Will they accept the answer? But there's also stuff that we need to figure out because the Navy, you know, the U.S. Uh, Navy report seems to suggest that there's an aviation hazard here. And I, I interviewed Gary Nolan of Stanford uh, recently. And, you know, apparently whatever this phenomenon is, it can injure people, you know, so those things that I think it's worth looking into based on, you know, those sorts of questions. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I People see strange things in the sky, no question. Mm -hmm. I mean, you ever seen a flock of geese fly over at the middle of the night with streetlights? Yeah. You know, so yeah. you're, you're, you've got that effect. So I think this is going to be a mixed bag, whatever they find out. They're going to, they're going to be like, there's, this is X, this is X, this is X. And then here's the, an unknown gray basket. Yep. And we may end up exactly where we started ultimately. I almost, I feel like I could almost guarantee, I could, I feel like I could write the final report which is we were able to 
explain a bunch. Uh, the ones that are remaining, we have some ideas for what they could be, but we have no evidence to go any further. And murmur, murmur, that's that's how this report will go. And that will obviously the people who are deeply invested into this outcome will be enraged because they'll feel like it wasn't given proper attention. Project Blue Book over again. Yeah, it's probably exactly right. Oh, it's just another campaign from those in the know to, but because like on the one hand you have this, but on the other hand you have, as we talked before, techno searches, you have, dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of astronomers who are scanning the sky every night, looking for exactly this kind of thing, who would love any kind of concrete evidence that this exists out there in the universe. And they don't feel like this is sufficient evidence for them to be able to follow on to to, to make further observations. So, so I don't think we're going to get anywhere. There's enough of them now, though. There's enough of them now, though, that are interested. I, I've interviewed a number, Jacob yep. Heck, Misra, yep. and, you know, uh, Avi Loeb and all that. There's, so we actually do have good scientists looking into it. It's just that I, again, my fears of ambiguity yep. arise because, you know, amb- ambiguous results don't work. You know, they don't answer the yeah. question. Yeah, I think, I think we're going to And I reach. worry about that near, far, wherever the aliens are, it's, it's, you know. But I have to admit, though, a deep-seated fear of an alien civilization in my atmosphere with me that is technologically vastly superior, that would be a calamity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> it's automatically, yeah, back to the, back the, to the pulling. Yeah. Yeah. Everything reduces down the solution to the Fermi paradox solutions necessarily dissolves down to the zoo hypothesis. If we actually yes, did see hundred percent. Yeah. Close. Yeah. I mean, it, like of all and, of the explanations for the Fermi paradox, the only one that holds water to me is the zoo paradox. Is the, is the zoo hypothesis. And that's, that's it. And it's the worst one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, is the, I think, is the preservers worse? I mean, there's some pretty bad ones. So I think having some kind of alien civilization that's attempting to hide our perspective of the reality of the universe for some reason, hopefully it's a good one, is better than than knowing that there's a robotic spacecraft waiting at the asteroid belt to destroy life on earth the moment somebody is clearly attempting a warp drive or somebody yeah somebody's building you know nanotechnology that could threaten another civilization and that's when it activates you know and yeah and yeah just, that's pretty yeah, that's pretty yeah horrifying. That's, you know, the weed gets pulled I, I don't like that universe very much no no but i do like a universe where we're simply rare because i think i can back that up i mean it took a lot of evolution to get to us and there was no guarantees and that maybe the real solution is that we live in dinosaur universe where most planets have, you know, that suitable planets have life, but it never gets to our stage. It never gets to intelligence and there's just, it's reptile universe, you know? Yeah. I don't even, I don't even think there's that kind of life in the universe. Like I really think like, like evolutionary, like, uh, Darwinian evolution through natural selection seems to be a process of creatures becoming more complicated to thrive in their, in their niche. And uh, obviously a human being has dominated planet earth through evolution. And I think you would see as long as the underlying 
laws of physics remain the same, that you've got a limited amount of energy falling on the planet, you have various limited amounts of chemicals available, limited amounts of water, you're going to see competition and you're going to see creatures attempting more and more complicated forms. Multicellular life, you know, we think that multicellular life happened once, but it actually happened dozens of times that we have dozens of examples of life going multicellular and then in some cases failing. Um, I did an interview with some researchers who can force yeast to go multicellular at whim. And that was, you know, that was a big potential great filter for a very long time was the prokaryotic to eukaryotic mm -hmm. leap. Yeah. And I don't buy that anymore. No, I mean, I mean even it's too much evidence. That yeah. And I even, I talked to a researcher saying like, you know, is there any reason why like when you take an ant and you have an ant colony, a colony has a has an emergent intelligence that is not present in the ant itself. Is there no reason why we couldn't have bacteria have an emergent level of differentiation? You know, like a multicellular organism. So I think there's a lot of pathways that life can take. If 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 the if the one constant is limited amounts of energy, chemicals, and water available to the life forms, they'll get clever. Life will find a way. And so I actually think that that some form of intelligent life is almost inevitable as, if you run this experiment and have Darwinian evolution running the show, forcing evolution time after time after time. Again, we should see it more often than we do. But as you say, it, it as you say, though, it may take forms maybe we're a, a relatively novel form of intelligence and in that it may take forms that more often are things like a, a hive mind, like ants, things like that. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, whatever it is, I mean, intelligence, flexibility seems to be, I mean, obviously was one of the greatest tricks that evolution ever came up with. I mean, it, it figured it out to, uh, to, for human beings and then human beings went and took over the whole planet and enslaved every other life form that's a trick like evolution figured out a pretty clever trick it seems and and you can see other life forms here from octopuses to covid birds corvids to dolphins pigs like there's a lot of other monk you know a lot of other life forms are progressing down this intelligence pathway so you know another example of of is it convergent evolution where you have multiple life forms coming upon the same advantage, you know. Yeah, the uh, dolphins, dolphins and sharks are shaped. Yeah, the same. bats and bats and birds, right? They fly. Yeah. So, so I think that, and we've seen eyesight evolve enough times that it just it just feels like if it's if it's a way to get ahead in a in a in an environment with scarce resources, evolution will stumble upon it eventually. And intelligence seems to have value in survival. That's interesting because that makes the Fermi paradox even more puzzling. Because if 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 That's it is why you know, we're alone, um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, I I just um, you know I, I spend way too much time thinking about the Fermi paradox. Obviously, since I have a YouTube channel that I've done nothing but talk about it for the last six years. But <laughs> well, I think well, and me too. I mean, uh, you know, probably every two or three question shows, I do a deep dive into, into the Fermi paradox. And, and, you know, you can always tell the newbies to my channel, because they ask me, you know, do you think we're alone in the universe? Um, and, and I'm like, well, let me tell you what I think. Um, but, or they say, do you believe in aliens? And then I will, will rant. 
but I, but I do think that if you think that you've got a, if you think you've got a solution to the Fermi paradox, you don't understand the Fermi paradox enough. Right. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's my feeling is, is like, if you're like, well, yeah, but like, what if they are really far? We've only explored a little bit of the universe. You know, you, you're then the, the true weight of the Fermi paradox hasn't sunk into your brain yet. It's terrifying, haunting possibilities. My last question for you today, Fraser, is the biggest existential crisis of them all, an asteroid. That's the one thing that can take us out and not for long, apparently, because of the DART mission. What's your views on that? Do you think that we're now sufficiently able to say that we can deflect an asteroid from yeah. Earth? Yeah, that was... Uh, that was a huge relief. There was two, actually, two big, two things that happened in fairly rapid succession. The first one was the DART mission, which ended up changing the orbit of this asteroid much more than anyone was ever anticipating. Like it turned out to be easier than we, than we thought. And so now if you want to move an asteroid, if you have, if you've got more time, then you can don't have to move it very far. If you don't have a lot of time, you can smash it with a heavier impactor. I've seen papers where people are now starting to go back and look at impactors that we only have like weeks of notice. The other thing is the level of the early warning system has gotten so much better. There was this asteroid that struck Canada uh, on November the 19th and astronomers detected about three and a half hours before impact the Catalina Sky Survey detected the asteroid, announced it to all the astronomers. The astronomers did follow-on observations, and within an hour, they had pinpointed exactly where and when and how big this thing was and how much damage it was not going to do because it was a one-meter asteroid. And that was a one-meter asteroid. You take something bigger, like a Chelyabinsk-sized rock, and now you've got days or even weeks' worth of notice. Well, if we had weeks of notice about Chelyabinsk, people would have known to not stand in front of their window when this thing airburst and thousands of people went to the hospital with lacerations. So you put that together, and we now have the ability to detect the trajectories of asteroids with stunning accuracy matched with the theoretical capability to shift an asteroid out of the way. Well, you can start, you know, we could launch impactors into space on various trajectories that could intercept incoming rocks. I think we can solve this problem within a couple of decades to the point that it is no longer an issue. It's really exciting. Which is really exciting because it means it's not a great filter because between the, the time filter. between yeah. the discovery of asteroids in general to today is what, 200 years, something along those lines. Yeah. And we're able, we went from discovery to mitigation in two centuries. And that yeah. would suggest that this is not a, a wide scale problem. But it was never a great filter because like, what are the chances that an asteroid impact would take out 100% of civilizations? Like, you always got to go back whenever you think about the Great Filter. You got to think, this thing has to be 100%. You've got 400 billion stars in 2 trillion galaxies, and yet not a single one has evaded the Great Filter. Yeah, it, it, it gets so situational, though, because you're going to have some star systems that just have too much material, and there's just they never really quiet down enough yeah. for civilization to develop. But you also have systems that would be the opposite, and they might even be better than the solar system. So yeah, exactly. You just can't yeah. know. And so what is, as long as there's a, like, if, if there's a 1% chance that 
there's a 99% chance that an asteroid will wipe out every civilization, then the 1% will go on to dominate the entire observable universe. Yep. Yep. And that's always the math. Yeah. Even, even, even the birds survived. The dinosaurs are still with us. They, they didn't go extinct. So yeah. even the birds managed to pull it off. All right, Fraser, thanks again for joining us. And we'll have to do this again at the end of next year and see yeah. what, see what's happened. Sure. Anytime. Yeah.